Brian, my man, welcome back to the show. How you doing? I'm great. Yeah, glad to uh, be back here and chatting with you again. Yeah, man. Um, we are going to talk today about this new deload study that's come out, and you and Aaron had a uh, you guys chat about it on your podcast, and I, you know, I always uh, there are few podcasts where I'm listening and the whole time, like I want the opportunity to pause and be like, oh yeah, I, I, I love like, not that, not just you guys, but like I, I, sometimes I'm like, oh, I would love to be in this chat right now. Um, yeah. But that was definitely one of them. And and and, and so we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a, we'll do some sidebars on that. Um, we're both doing full body training right now. So I want to talk about just kind of how that's going, some pros and cons, tips and tricks. People are uh, interested in doing that. We'll talk, you have your race this weekend, right? Yeah, coming up, man, for five more days. Jesus Christ. I just, I had another client who's, who's training for a marathon. So um, I just went through that with her. She's doing it also this Saturday. And so I'm interested in about, she's running, you're biking, but you know, obviously there's a, there's a decent amount of overlap in terms of general preparation and philosophy. So I'll, I'll be interested in what you're doing. And we'll definitely touch on that in a sec. Um, I want to start with this deload study. Um, and we can talk about it. It's funny. I, I, I've read so many people's opinions on it. And just this morning, I was like, let me read the full text here. Like, let's not be dumb. Like, let's let's not just go from what other people said. And, and it just reminded me how important it is to do that because of the mm. sometimes the particular language that's used in the paper is really helpful. Um, and people have just derived some slightly different conclusions. Not not that I don't agree with it or that I don't agree with what other people have said. But anyway, I'll, I'll just do a quick brief breakdown that I want to hear. Um a little bit about your thoughts and your take homes and we'll kind of just shoot the shit about what we thought was good and not so good or applicable or not so applicable or yep. ecologically valid and all that stuff. And so for the listener, essentially they, you know, took a 50 people, I think it was, and they randomized them into two groups. Uh, one group was going to train for nine weeks continuously. Uh, the other group was going to take a one week cessation or a deload, basically not training for one week. So four weeks on one week off and then four weeks on again. Um, they were training four times a week, upper lower, um, but the, 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 only the quad training was supervised by the group. And so they were like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to have everybody on a very similar structure of program. We're going to try and control as many of those variables. It's not like some people are training two days a week and some people are training seven days a week. Cause that would totally bring in a lot of confounding variables, but they're, they're like, we can't, I'm guessing that their mind was like, well, we can't, we can't, uh, uh, oversee every single rep on every single exercise, on every single workout. So we are going to say, hey, we're all going to do upper lower split, but we are going to hyper-focus on your quad training because that's going to be where we are assessing these sorts of outcomes that we're looking at, measurements, strength, muscle size, all that stuff. Um, and we're not going to go into too much detail about exactly what the workouts were like, but I will say that they trained reasonably. When I, when I look at the quad training, they trained reasonably hard. There's the, you know, you and I will talk about whether or not the how hard they trained is a is a limitation or strength in terms of applying it to the people you and I work with, but they trained reasonably hard, I'd say. And, you know, they, they, they encouraged the trainees to train to volitional failure and they were doing a decent amount of sets and doing some logical exercises. And it certainly didn't, it wasn't, didn't look like some weird programming that, you know, didn't look anything like what the average person is doing. Um, uh, okay. What else to set the scene here? Um, they looked at things at the end of the study, things like in body, alt, uh, in body sc uh, scan. They did an ultrasound of the quad muscle. They did uh one RM, they did vertical jump. They did isometric strength. They did leg extension reps. Uh, they looked at like a subjective readiness to train score. I, I thought they were quite thorough with a bunch of the things that they checked. They checked three different spots on the quad. Uh, so it wasn't just like one single measurement. They tried to find, you know, look at three different uh, portions of the quad to see maybe like regionally if there were some differences. 
Um, and I will give, you know, a small summation of what I think they found and, and maybe imprint my own bias or thoughts on it. <laughs> and I'd love to hear you uh, kind of just see what you felt about it. So essentially what happened was not much. Uh, the group that trained for nine straight weeks and the group that took a week off in the middle basically got the same results across the board. I'd say if you had to skew it, if you had to just lean in one direction, the nine-week continuous group scored a teeny tiny bit better, not statistically significant on basically anything at all. So I think the main take-home is basically the same shit, whether you trained nine, nine weeks straight or four weeks on and then one week completely off training, which I want to remind you, it's not like they did some lower volume or lower intensity deload. They just did not train for a full week. And then four weeks on, it didn't seem to matter. So I'd love to hear kind of what were some of the things that jumped out to you in terms of study? What are some of the take-homes for you? And, and we'll kind of go back and forth on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I initially just agree with everything you said. So um, <laughs> definitely not not a debate here. Um, I think the thing that's the most applicable to our population of people is that, hey, you can take a week off and it's okay. You can keep chugging along and your results aren't going to be noticeably different, at least over the course of a nine week period. Um, it would be interesting to know if this continued for a year and every four weeks you took a week off, you know, do we have a difference at that point? I would guess probably, especially because it was slightly leaning toward the group that didn't take the deload anyways. You thought, and you um, think what you think what would change if, if we were doing this for across a year? I think if you took a week off every four weeks for a year, meaning you took 13 weeks off or, or not 10 weeks or whatever the math works out to be over a course of a year, I think you would have slightly worse results than the group that trained continuously or took more auto-regulated deloads. Okay, okay, Because okay, good, I, yeah. I think, yeah. But, but so the thing with continuous training is like anybody that trains doesn't just go ham for 52 straight weeks. Like even if you put one of our clients into a program and said, Hey, you're just going to train for 52 straight weeks. Even if they weren't under our direct guidance and we were manipulating their intensity and stuff, they would naturally, I think be inclined to have some harder weeks and some easier weeks without even pre-planning it just because that's the way that the body kind of responds to things over time. So even if it's not called a deload, it's a, a, a period with some cessation of some sort. Um, but either way, that's not exactly where I wanted to go with this analysis anyways. Um, so I think the biggest problem with the study is the ecological validity, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, and that nobody takes a week off after four weeks. I know a ton of people that take a week off, but it's a a necessity or it's a, it's a vacation or it's something where you beaten yourself down for eight to 12 weeks. You haven't taken any deload weeks. You've been progressing intensity and volume maybe. And then eventually you're like, wow, I'm really crushed right now. I'm the type of person that prefers to take a week off instead of going into the gym and kind of just muck around with half-assed efforts for a week. So I'm just going to take a week off after 12 weeks or whatever. And my, my theory here would be that if somebody did do that, where they train 12 weeks on one week off, 12 weeks on one week off, that would probably be the best result. That would be better than training 52 continuous weeks, and it would probably be better than going four weeks on one week off, four weeks on one week off. So, I mean, clearly we don't have an arm that did that. Another cool thing that would be to see would be an arm that did the exact same study they did, but during that week off, they went in and did relatively light deload workouts, or even to have a fourth leg where maybe it was three days off in the middle. So it's either three days cessation, no training, or it's seven days and you're doing kind of like 50% to 70% effort deload style training. Um, so I think those would all be cool things to see. And obviously 
something we can't have at this point. Um, but you know what, from what I've seen on social media, it seems like most of the people are using the study as a way to say, see, you don't need to deload. You can just train all the time. But the way that I look at it is really the opposite, which is, Hey, you don't have to train all the time and you can get mostly the same results. And so now it becomes much more sustainable in people's lives. And it gives me some confidence during this period of time where I'm, you know, ramping up cardio volume, much like you to say, Hey, it's okay. If I take four days off here or can't train this week and prioritize my cardio and then get back to training the next week. So it really has provided uh, a sense of freedom in my mind for people instead of this uh, restriction of you must train all the time because you're going to get slightly skewed better results if you just train all the time. Yeah, I was really surprised with the rhetoric in the paper and thus the rhetoric in those who have read the paper in insofar as there was an expectation, almost a level of disappointment that the deload, that the deloading group didn't get better gains. And, and I just, I never went there. Like if you ask me, <laughs> hey, one, one group's going to train for nine weeks, the other one's going to do four weeks on, one week off, four weeks off. Who's going to get better gains? Um, I, I would bet probably evenly my my thoughts would be I'm putting even money on either no difference or the nine week gets better gains. Um, I, I, none of my money is going on that the four on one off four off gets gets statistically significant better gains. That's that to me is the least likely outcome. Now yeah. I'm not uh, like I said all of this in context. The biggest take home for damn sure is that. Yeah, probably not a big deal. Not really a big deal. You could deload. You could you could do nothing. And and like you said, there's time scales over which these potential non significant differences might amount to a significant difference. But it you know in nine weeks that we can say based on the study that isn't the times the time scale in which we'd see something. Um, but that's really the big. I just was. Uh, I really was mind boggled at the rhetoric of like, oh, it, it, you know, we thought that the deload week would get better gains. I'm like, did you like? And, and I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to be so. I'm not up on my high horse. I'm not. I'm not like this. But like, it does make me question. Like, who, who did this study? Like, you guys thought that's what you thought based on? I don't know. I, I, don't, I just don't know. It was a little sus. I was like, you guys thought that that this would be a study where the four on one off four on would get, get notably better gains. Like, I don't know. It just didn't seem to me as like someone who was like really on the ball of like, yeah, this is. Yeah. Anyway, I can't imagine well, that's, that, that would be the case. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the RP approach, though, right? I mean, what they got famous with the four accumulation weeks and then one week deload for accumulation week thing. The, the it's interesting though that they never really advised a week off. Like they would say, Hey, take a week off, you know, every six months or whatever. But it wasn't like that week after every four weeks should be a week off. It was in fact, supposed to be a, a deload week where you reduce volume and intensity and basically build back up again. Um, and so that's where I think that having that leg in the study would have been, would have been huge. Um, and then also just obviously a longer study, but you know, we're limited by college semesters and all that stuff. Yep. Yep. I, I, think that um so my group program does five weeks on one week off and that that week off which is i'm saying that you know uh, it's not actually a week off it's, a, it's an intro week deload and in that week we do one hard set of everything so we do one set of a two to three rir and so um you know that certainly is not the same as the study this is four weeks so a, a shorter uh, less work to rest ratio and and this has a complete cessation cessation of training which we do not necessarily suggest now i would say though it'd be an interesting i again i'm you know uh especially when we get together i think we get super nihilistic about this but i even think that that yes if you took so we have one we have one iteration of this where you take four on one off and you extrapolate that over 15 weeks or 52 weeks where that's 13 weeks of not training and then you have the 52 weeks and then we can say if we layer on a little realistic 
layer on top of that. Nobody probably would be able to or would do that. Maybe it's 48 weeks uh, that they train really hard or something. And it's like, okay, but which of those two people people gets better gains? I would say the person who did the 48 weeks, the person who literally did not train at all for 13 weeks, I bet they get, I bet we start to see a difference here. Yeah. But I think that, so we just went from nine weeks to one year. Okay, now I think that there's a difference, let's say. But I think from one year to 10 years, now we get back to a place where I think there's no difference. And so it is... It is interesting that the time scale is this like upside down curve where it's like on a very mm-hmm. short scale, you won't see much. On a medium term scale, you probably do. But I almost, I'm trying to think of this analogy as you were talking of like um, a traffic jam. It's not, it's not the right analogy, but it's like, it's like, you know, when somebody speeds past you to a red light, it's like, that's what we're all doing where it's like, all right, asshole, like you fucking fly by me and then you see the red light and then we, we both pull up next to each other. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, all right, I was going a little <laughs> bit slower than you, but we, you know, we all, all roads led to this place here. And that's kind of what I don't, I don't want to be overly nihilistic. It's cool to get better gains. If you want to get better, faster progress over a shorter period of time, there's nothing wrong with that. But I definitely am like, yeah, if, if they did a one year study, two year study, probably see better gains in, in yeah. the person who, you know, doesn't take a quarter of the year completely or 20% of the year completely off, but yeah, extrapolate that even further. And it's like, well, actually now I don't think it matters. Yeah. That's really interesting that you extrapolate that out over 10 or 15 years. And you're right. Uh, and using, going back to your analogy of the traffic jam, it's like that car that speeds by you is having to use more gas to basically get to the exact same spot. And you're able to get there just kind of like chugging along in zone two or whatever, you know, other analogy you want to expand from that. Um, and I think also another thing to bring up here is you probably thought I was going to do this, but the Ogasawara study, um, because that one was longer term and had more time off. And so they went six weeks on, three weeks off, six weeks on, three weeks off, six weeks on. Uh, they trained 18 of 24 weeks and the other group just trained 24 weeks all the way through. And they basically had the same results at the end of that too. Um and so that one, I, I think we could break down and get a little more nitty gritty into that, which I don't think we should do today. But, um, you know, nobody's going to be taking three weeks off. That was more of a detraining study of like, hey, how quickly can we get things back after we lose it? And so I think in that study, they did actually lose stuff after three weeks. It just like during the six week period, they got it all back. So it kind of made it irrelevant, um, which is another kind of saving grace for people that are like, you know, down with injury or take a long vacation, you know, not a big deal. Whatever you lose, will come back quickly. So, yeah, there was some. Um, so I'm going to read a just quick quote. It said, uh, we found no evidence of a potentiating effect pursuant to resensitization. And I think that that's I think that that's false. I think that they didn't see um if okay, so if potentiating, I'll I'll I'll, I'll take a step back. If they if by potentiation they mean greater net gains over the same period of time, then yes, the resensitization that did occur did not yield greater net gains over nine weeks. But if someone's reading that and they're like, oh, there's no such thing as resensitization, that that's not true. By definition, if you got equal gains in eight weeks with a week off, then nine weeks, then by definition, you must have resensitized. And by definition, there was some greater potentiation on the back end or greater gains on the back end. So I read that quote and I was like, well, if they mean potentiation in the sense that it didn't yield greater net gains, fine, but um, certainly resensitization is a thing or you would have seen worse gains. Yeah, I mean, that would then assume that they detrained a little bit during that week off, which I think is also a reasonable assumption. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and and so I've actually been, 
not a proponent of frequent use of taking a complete cessation from the gym, but I think the the beauty of hypertrophy is that when you look at what does detrain over a five to nine day period, it's not muscle tissue. And if we just look at it just straight up, what is a, what is hypertrophy? It's the, it is a sport of muscle tissue accrual. And and there's a little nuance to that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna forego that for a second to make a point. Um, <laughs> is that like you know what does seem to detrain in that five to nine day period? are things like coordination and skill acquisition and technique and neurological efficiency. And those are all like relevant in an indirect sense in my ability to accrue muscle, but they don't, it's not the actual final thing that I care about as a hypertrophy athlete or somebody trying to change my physique, which is muscle tissue. And so Mm. I'm not saying that you should take a week off every four weeks. I think that the, the, the longer you train, continuously, the more weeks you strain together, the more that week off becomes a, a a thing that goes up my priority list of consideration. Like you said, where it's like 12 weeks on one week off that, that starts to make a lot more sense. Um, but I, but I also think that, you know, on an individual basis, weighing the psychological benefits of this. And of course we're talking about trade-offs now. So, you know, we have to diverge from like what's best for gains with, which is like, or, 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 or and now go into like, Oh, what's best for the individual who might take that week off um, acknowledge that there's no real muscle tissue loss. Yes, it might take you a bit of time to get better back into the groove of training, but maybe you have time for other things that in your life, uh, you know, you, you, you're going through dad week right now. Like if you were like, hey man, I'm gonna take a week off and I'm freaking out about muscle tissue loss, this study might be something where it's like, hey, like it's really not a big deal. Yeah, totally. I really like at this point, I mean, like you said, the longer you train, the less it seems to matter. At 25 years in, I, I just don't stress it. Um, now, you know, not to bleed into our next topic yet, but, um, with my full body training program, there've been many days or weeks rather where I'll take four or five days between sessions because I'm just beat up or I want to prioritize a cardio workout or something along those lines. And in the past, man, even a matter of six months or a year ago, if I took four or five days off that were unplanned, I would have been sitting there kind of like itching. And, uh, and I really wasn't at all. It was just kind of like, yeah, I'll get back to the gym when I do. And it'll always be there. Yeah. We're going to talk about full body training in a sec. I want to say a sentence that, um, that I've, that has just been coming into my mind with the more deload discussion. And I want you to do like what you do on those, like uh, tests when you were a kid, it's like strong disagree, like kind of disagree, mm-hmm. like neutral, like kind of agree, strongly agree. Um, and then we can talk about it a little bit more. And so Here. the sentence is, the down the downsides of deloading just before you need to or the downsides of deloading before you need to are smaller than the downsides of not deloading when you should um and so or the, or the risk of deloading when the the risk of not deloading when you should is greater than the risk of deloading before you should um and potentially missing out on a week of training thoughts yeah i mean agree agree to to mostly agree Somewhere in that like 4.5 out of 5 range. I've We're going to talk a little bit about overreaching, but uh, just a total pers- personal anecdote. So just like everyone, let's keep this in context because it's just about me. But I haven't deloaded in a while. And I was playing around with this idea of my, my training volume is super low, but my overall training stress is quite high from the addition of cardio work. But I was, you know, I was like, hey, let me just experiment with not pre-planning deloads. Um, and... 
you know, I have been known to say, well, if you don't take the D load, D load takes you, or, or, you know, I've been known to reiterate Mike Isertel's statement on that, which is, mm-hmm. is more, that's more of my deja vu is him saying that. Um, and that, that sort of happened to me this past, this past week is I, it's probably been like 10 and a half weeks since I deloaded and I drove eight out, 10 hours back to New Jersey and we got there like, you know, 7 PM. And the next morning I, I was like, all right, I'm going to stick to my program because, you know, uh, I really want to not, not because I'm feeling like anxious about, you know, if I miss a workout, but I, I can, I can do this. There's a hotel, has a gym, has a treadmill. I can do whatever I need to do. And I went downstairs to the hotel first thing in the morning, uh, did one pull up and my trap just, just shattered. Uh, my trap just was rocked. I, I did like literally one set of eight and I, my trap, that like subscap trap area, um, was like, nope, you're done. Like you're strained. Like this strain, I couldn't lift my right arm. I couldn't even do curls. Um, I couldn't run because of the impact. Um, I could have done a recline bike or something. I was just like looking around for something that didn't have anything. And essentially, long story short, the deload took me. And I was like, you know, it knocked me out for an entire week. It psychologically fucked me up. I I couldn't do anything. So it required a complete cessation. And I just thought, I was like, yeah, you could, one, obviously all things considered, you're an idiot for thinking you were just gonna like pop into this gym, like, um, you know, eight, 10 hours in the car. You slept in like your your in-laws, like son's like, you know, two by four bed, no offense, love you, Mike, but um, it wasn't great. And, And anyway, I look back and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd rather just have deloaded this week and just said, hey, I'm gonna deload this week instead of like, just keep going. And the risk of me missing out on the gains from this week, in my opinion, are smaller than what actually happened was, you know, the risk of me pushing further than I was supposed to, but total end of one, yeah. What would you have, what do you think the result would have been if instead of training that day, you had waited one day and then gone back and done it? Yeah, there's no way of knowing, but 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 definitely yeah. possible. And I, and I could have, I could have said to myself, hey, like, maybe cardio is going to be less of a thing that you're likely to fuck up here. And maybe like doing your cardio today as a form of, yeah, a very nebulous loosening up might be mm-hmm. a better route. Um, or, you know, God forbid this like idea of doing the cardio first and then going mm-hmm. to do my lifting, which is like total, like, uh, you know, you can't faux pas. <laughs> you absolutely can't do that. But that like thought ran through my mind of like, hey, what did yeah. you do your like running first? Maybe there's like some element of warming up that would be, you know, and of course I do like a, I'm not an idiot. It's not like I ran up. I was like, oh, I was going to do one set to failure immediately, like rolling out of my bed. But um, but you're right. There was there are other things I could have done this that, uh, to to kind of mitigate the chance of this happening. It wasn't just I should have deloaded, but absolutely true, mm-hmm. totally true. Were you feeling the other subjective signs of deload, like the psycho psychological side of you know not really wanting to push as hard as you need to push and things like that? Honestly, uh, not really. Um, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's you know I haven't felt that in a cumulative sense. I have felt more the fatigue. It's ironic because my whole history of hypertrophy training, I never get an acute sense of of this like really high stress uh, sympathetic nervous system dominance. I only feel I've felt it in my life chronically. So over six, seven, eight weeks of hard hypertrophy training, I get the. For me, the manifestation is uh, I can't sleep. I wake up at three, four o'clock in the morning, and I'm like bug eyed, and that's just that cortisol dysregulation. Uh, sympathetic dominance, all that stuff, but it's it's cumulative. And I know you've talked about what I'm about to talk about, which is this acute sort of workout that's so fucking hard that actually, in an acute sense, for like 24 to 48 to 72 hours afterwards, you're experiencing this sort of like overreaching in an acute sense from that from that actual workout. And um, 
So that has happened to me with cardio before. Like it's never yeah. happened to me with training before. Like talk a little bit about what happened to you. Cause I know you did like a sample race and it just mm -hmm. fucked you up. Yeah. I actually had two different things occur in kind of back to back weeks. And so I'm guessing there was some cumulative nature to that as well. Um, but about, um, at this point, two and a half, maybe three weeks ago, I went out and tried to emulate what my race would feel like. I tried to find a route that would have similar distance and similar vertical climbing. Um, and so my race is 50 miles with 2,500 feet of climbing. So I did 45 miles with 2000 feet of climbing. So it really is damn close. And I went more or less as hard as I could go for 45 miles, uh, which took about two and a half hours. And, uh, I felt fine during it felt great. Uh, performance was good. I got back home and literally within moments of stopping, I started having like massive GI distress and ended up spending the next 30 hours on the toilet, probably 20 to 30 times, like basically every hour or more during the day. Cause not as much at night. Um, and so there was like a big part of me that wasn't sure that this, I'm still not sure that this was from the workout itself versus maybe there was just something like I caught a bug and it manifested at that moment. It could also be that my immune system was compromised from the workout. So it allowed the bug to manifest itself. Um, so there's a number of different possibilities there, but that one was not a fever. I wasn't sick. I, I didn't get the, the, the big sympathetic response of the decreased, uh, HRV and elevated resting heart rate. I didn't really get that from that one. And that's also kind of why I'm leaning towards it being a bug and not the workout per se. Um, but once I recovered from that, I then just kind of continued training as normal. And so the prior week to this, which would, would have been like two weeks out, two and a half weeks out from the race. I did another really hard workout on a day that I wasn't feeling great. Like I woke up and I was tired. I felt lethargic. I went for a walk with my wife and I was expressing this to her. And she said, you probably shouldn't go do that really hard ride today. And I was like, yeah, but you know, Nate is going to take me to this new thing and I got to try this climb and whatever, whatever peer pressure, um, not to blame Nate or anything, but, um, I did the workout felt awful riding home. Like I, I got through it, but as soon as we started our descent back home, I was like, Oh, that was, that was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. And literally the next three days, I two and a half days, I had a fever. I had sweats and chills. Um, I had the elevated resting heart rate and the decreased HRV. And so now talking to you on Monday, it's been, uh, man, 10 days since, I came down with that and it is just three days ago that my resting heart rate corrected itself. And it was just today that my HRV corrected itself. And so that was like a seven day period, at least from doing that workout and getting sick to, to all of my kind of metrics normalizing again. And I also like, don't know, even from that workout, like in that case, I mean, I was feeling lethargic and slow before I did that workout. So there's that part of me that thinks that I was on the verge. Um, but when you combine all of this together, my guess is that it really comes back to, Hey, I was doing too much cumulatively over time. It wasn't necessarily one acute workout. It was the building over time, which was kind of my plan. I wanted to slightly overreach so that I could taper, um, but I didn't obviously want to get sick and compromise myself in that way. So uh, that's that's my story, my lesson. And it does seem to be that 
like you said, cardio is the thing that can get me there. Intense cardio. The zone two stuff is is great. Like I have no issue with that. But the intense cardio uh, cumulatively over time does seem to create some of that recovery debt. Are you? Do you feel like you're on like? Um, I feel like when I'm just doing hypertrophy, there's my my glass, my metaphorical glass of which you know, upon filling with water and overflowing is a metaphor for like overreaching. Has a ton of room in it. Not like mm-hmm. a ton of room like. I'm not even remotely close to training as much as I could recover from and I'm not even doing any volume, but like I have a significant amount that like day-to-day acute fluctuations in my recovery. If I miss a, a, a night of sleep's not so great or my nutrition's not perfect or whatever, like I can still generally recover. It's, you know, I, I obviously, you know, that that bad night, uh, that night of bad sleep or that you had a couple drinks or that's like pouring more water in the glass and upon overflowing, okay, then you have some of these overreaching symptoms. But when I'm training for hypertrophy, I feel like I can get away with that. In doing this hybrid training, and I want to talk to you because I know you switched to a three-day full body program, and I have too, and it was certainly, uh, like, I was, like, right on uh, the cusp of doing that, and I was like, Brian, going full body? I, I need to do it. I'm, I'm, on. Um, I'm curious, do you feel that way? I feel like I don't, I, my recovery, it's not that I'm on a knife's edge, and I'm like, I, I'm, you know, if I miss one fucking gram of carbs, all of a sudden I'm overreached, but I am certainly like, yeah, dude, to be, like, high level hybrid athlete, your really recovery has got to be in check because you are flying close to the sun in terms of recovery. Yeah. And I didn't realize the magnitude at which that took place either. Um, so I would train all the time and we've had conversations on here before we got into cardio. We know where, you know, psychological need to deload is the thing that creates it. It's not the physiological. It's not like you're actually going to decrease performance or anything like that. And so what you're saying is hundred percent accurate. I didn't realize how much room I still had when I was just resistance training and walking. Um, because I never from resistance training, even cumulatively, as you alluded to, I've never gotten to a point where I have had my resting heart rate elevate 10 to 15 beats for a matter of a couple of days. Uh, that just doesn't happen from resistance training. It might elevate three to five beats to the point that it's almost negligible and you can't even tell if it was just from a poor night of sleep or what the cause of the resting heart rate elevation was with cardio. It, it happens and it happens hard. And as soon as my resting heart rate gets up into the fifties and then even in like recently into the low sixties, uh, for a night or a day, that was something that I just never would see from resistance training. And it's made me curious about how much volume I can actually handle and recover from when I'm not doing all this cardio. And it's, it's been intriguing. I I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to experiment a little bit once the race is over and see kind of how much resistance training does it take for me to push that boundary and get to that point? Because I really haven't been there before. I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure I like lifting and like, I love lifting, but I'm not sure I don't even like lifting enough to actually get there. I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah. The cardio brings me there quicker. The higher intensity work for sure does. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm imagining, trying to imagine how much lifting will do that. And I'm like, I probably tap out of like enjoyment before I actually hit that point. I wouldn't have the psychological motivation to train enough to reach that point. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Let's talk, let's pivot a little bit. So you have your race coming up. Um, and recently you've switched to a three day full body program. I want to talk about why you made that switch. I'm going to ask you why you made that switch and then how you've constructed those three days and why. Yeah. So first thing is it's not necessarily three days. I have three rotating workouts, but to say that I'm trying to prioritize cramming them into a week is absolutely false. 
Um, I would say I probably end up doing those three over nine or 10 days in most cases. Um, and that's just because I think of where, where it was in my training progression, uh, how late I switched to that program in the progression to the race. And so I switched to the full body six or seven weeks out from the race and we're, you know, five days out right now. So it's been basically a mesocycle of, of doing full body. And the reason that I did it was because my legs were getting so beat up and fatigued from the split style training that I just couldn't put in the effort that I needed to into my, the intensity days of my cardio. Um, that would probably be the main reason. Second reason is, man, when I was cardioing six days a week, it just seemed very daunting to also fit four or five, uh, bodybuilding workouts in, even if it's just back and triceps or something along those lines. And it just was much more manageable to say, okay, today's a really easy ride. It's like a recovery ride. You know, I'll go 45 to 75 minutes at zone one, zone two. That seems like a reasonable day to do a full body workout. Um, and that would just kind of be where I would place them. And it made the whole process of scheduling my workouts and following auto regulation and things like that just much more streamlined. Did you see a or program a net decrease in volume or did you take your four or five lifts and say, okay, I'm doing that much volume, but I'm just going to do it in three days now? That's a good question. And it's ambiguous. I'm not quite sure how to answer it because the way that I structured the full body program was that every movement had four sets, but it would increase in difficulty each set. So take a, a length in movement, like an RDL, it might go 10, six, four, one as, as the RIR. And so do you count that set of four as like volume that is, I, I, it's ambiguous. If you're just counting my top set of each movement, then yes, it was a decrease in volume. If you're counting the second set before the top set as well, which could be, you know, two RIR or three RIR on a short overload movement, then it's probably similar. But then that also assumes that I would be hitting those three sessions in the week. And once I started spanning them over nine days instead of seven days, I think you have an absolute decrease in volume. Um, my concern for that is zero um, because A, the cardio is the priority and B, you know, all the studies on maintenance volume and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So yeah, doing it over nine days skews that. What was the reason? So you were doing... It sounds like what you just said is a change in strategy of this, like, hey, 10, 4, you know, 10, 6, 4, 1 in terms of RIR. Is that something you're doing for a particular reason with the full body training? Yeah, I mean, it was just a way to get warm up sets in in a strategic manner. Um, and so my normal inclination would just be to, you know, do two or three sets of warm up and then boom, one top set type thing. Um, but in this approach, I went much more of like that 12, 10, 8, 6, like old pyramid, reverse pyramid, reverse pyramid, whatever, uh, pyramid style training. But basically the set of 12 is my first set. When I go into the gym, I go in cold and boom, I'm hitting a set of 12 at 10 RIR or something along those lines. And then I go to the next movement and I do the same thing. And then the next movement and the next movement. So my circuit has like four movements in it moving relatively quickly between them, but it's still a matter of six minutes or so before I get back to the first movement. And so then I'm, yeah, I'm ready to put more weight on, work a little bit harder and then kind of work through the circuit again, add some more weight, work through the circuit and then mentally prepare and really hit like your hard top set. It just, to me, it made sense uh, as a better use of time. So you use the word circuit. You are, that's something that I haven't heard you say. I know where you're going with that, but is that something that you've enjoyed in the sense of like, hey, I'm going to do my 
set of 12 RDLs. And then I'm gonna go to the other exercise and do the set of 12. And then the next exercise set of 12 and then eventually make my way back to the RDL. Is this something that you weren't doing before that you are doing now? And are you enjoying that? Yeah, in my body part split routine, I usually set up my program so that I can alternate between two movements in that manner. Um, not as supersets, but with rest in between each. And so, yeah, switching to the full body routine and getting four movements done in a circuit. Um, I actually really, really did enjoy that. I, I don't think it's reasonable for split routine because you just don't have that many antagonistic muscle groups when you're building out a split. Um, but for the purpose that it served for me, it was great. And given that I was in my home gym where I can create things to perfectly fit, it would be like T-bar row, cable chest press, leg curl and hack squat, you know? And so I don't have any conflicting equipment, everything I can just kind of move seamlessly between them. Uh, it was an, a great time saver. I I'll say for my split routine work that I was doing, I, you know, I'm a big fan of rest between sets, especially for hypertrophy, but I would probably take 90 minutes to do a total of 12 working sets usually. And in this full body routine, I would get through the entire full body, which I usually had six exercises and I would be able to get through that in 50 to 60 minutes usually. Yeah, just to reiterate for the listener, what you're doing now is saying, instead of doing my set of RDLs resting five minutes, set of RDLs resting five minutes, you're acknowledging that, yeah, RDLs and, you know, or RDLs might be a bad example because maybe you want it, you, maybe, maybe you're more inclined to hit that one by itself, but let's take the chest press T-bar row where you're like, yeah. hey, T-bar row, two minute rest, chest press, two minute rest instead of five minutes T-bar row, five minutes T-bar row or something like that. And um, I have been resistant to that approach in my own training for a while because my first foray into that was with some of the N1 some of the N1 programming and the rest periods with that that application of that strategy were just just a I'm finding out now that they were just a bit too short and I was finding that you know cardiovascular uh, two two confounding variables here one is that when it was first initially introduced to me of like hey like instead of doing you know bicep curl rest bicep curl bicep curl do this do bicep curl rest 60 seconds and then go do tricep extensions or leg extensions. So some non-impeding muscle group where it's like an air quote superset, but it's not back to back. You're just using less rest and then going to an antagonist and then less rest and back. Um, and I was resistant to that. I think because it was like 45 seconds or 60 seconds. And I was like, yeah, I know they're antagonistic, but like A, I'm not in amazing shape. So like I'm more at risk for cardiovascular like intervention here. Um, but recently, just extending that, that like I normally rest three to four minutes, let's say between most sets. And I'm like, okay, when I do that on this full body day, which for me, what moving to full body, for me, I did squeeze four into three. So I took my four days a week and I just did that many sets in three days. The caveat is I wasn't doing that many sets. I'm doing like, you know, I was doing 32 sets a week. I was doing eight sets per workout. So yeah, okay, now I'm doing those in three days. It's still it's still less than the average person is doing. So I don't want you listener to be like, oh, I'm doing 20 working sets on four days. I can just do all of that in three days. This might be a little bit much. Um, but I am finding that as I'm doing that, cramming more sets in, this strategy of like, hmm, can I identify maybe just two exercises? Uh, yesterday was leg extension and tricep extension where I'm like, yeah, instead of resting two minutes between leg extension and tricep extension, I could, I could probably rest like 45, 60 seconds and go do tricep extension. And then I'm almost I'm not cardiovascularly winded, which again, confounding variable, maybe I'm a bit in better shape now and can handle that. Yeah. Um, but it's been it's been enjoyable. Now the, the, the underlying benefit is that you're not resting as long systemically, 
but your yeah. triceps might be resting longer. And so I might, between my tricep extensions, might be three, four minutes where I would have normally rested two minutes, but I, you know, am moving between exercises. And so, um, yeah, that's been a really thing. Really, that's nice. And like you said, it's, it's easier in my home gym. I can have multiple exercises set up and nobody bother me. But yeah, if you're in your own gym and you're, you know, you can do both of those at a cable stack, maybe that's something to consider. It's like do your, um, your standing Y raises and then rest 60 seconds and do your, uh, facing away cable curl. You don't have to move the cables and then 60 seconds. And, and maybe that's a way to just decrease the net amount of time you're training, but also give each of those muscle groups actually longer. Yeah, no, for sure. I've become quite a fan of it. And I actually have, uh, Jeff Haynes doing a bit of that in his programming now too. And I think he's, he's, that's how you pronounce Jeff's last name. Hain. Hain. No yeah. way. I, I'm, <laughs> that's how he introduces it on his podcast. That's a bro. phonetic nightmare. <laughs> Jeff Hain. I, 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 people who are like, Hey, uh, Jeff's always somebody I recommend for one-on-one coaching. And every time I type his name out to someone, I'm like, ah, Jeff, H. Hone. Yeah, I think Jeff that H. Hone is know? what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. yeah. Shout out, um, Jeff. So yeah. So either way, to, yeah. to move on from that, um, I will say that I tried this full body approach similarly uh, two years ago when I was just doing steps. I hadn't done any cardio. You know, I was more or less using this as a uh, a reprieve from hypertrophy training to do like the N1, you know, drop out, do a neural phase type thing. But I would set it up kind of in this circuit format. And my rest periods were significantly longer two years ago than they are now. And so I can only attest to that being from the cardiovascular endurance increase. And um, yeah, you'll probably find the same. So when we look at like a conceptual downside of full body training as a general discussion, hey, what are the what are the downsides, potential downsides of full body training? Like I used to have an answer that I felt was an, was an answer I could stand behind. I just don't know if I have that answer anymore. Like even if a full four day, my, my group programs, four day, upper, lower, I love four day, upper, lower. But if someone's like, Hey, why don't we do a full body? And I, I used to have a, a physiological answer for them that upon, you know, giving it a real go myself, I'm just not sure I have anymore. Um, I'm, I will throw the question to you and I would hear what you, I'd love to hear what you say where it's like, Hey, uh, you know, why, what are the potential downsides, if any, of doing full body training over split training? Yeah. I mean, I still think there are some downsides. Um, I know even with my increased cardiovascular endurance, if I were trying to do the amount of intensity and volume that I do on a split routine, you know, assuming I'm not in my cardiovascular phase and my, my one a is lifting. I, I really do struggle with the design of full body program on a three times a week structure because a, the movements that are uh, later in the workout really do tend to suffer. And so the argument could be, okay, well, you know, on a different day, you'll put those muscle groups first. And then on another day you put them last and okay, I can, I can agree with that potentially. Um, although I wouldn't say that you want to put arms first in most cases. Um, but the other side of this is I have never been able to do leg training three days a week with any reasonable intensity and volume. And that always is the thing that is my hiccup in designing or implementing full body training programs now, because, you know, you can think about it when I think about it strategically, I'm like, okay, I'll put my really hard movements on Mondays and Fridays and Wednesday will be like leg extensions and leg curls or, or something along those lines. But that doesn't work because you're so sore from this stuff on Monday that you get to Wednesday and you're like, 
I am supposed to go do leg extensions, leg curls. Now I can't produce any power. Like clearly my power production is, is diminished from where it should be at baseline. And then it's like, you're just digging deeper into that fatigue curve. And then you get to Friday and now you have more hard leg movements, more length and stuff. And basically I'm sore throughout the entire weekend just to show up again on Monday and have to do more leg stuff again. Uh, so for me, that really is the mitigating factor. Um, you could probably design it where you're only doing legs twice a week. Um, but then are you really doing a three times a week full body routine? Um, so I would say that's still my main, my main hiccup there. I, on that same breath though, like I trained full body for the first three years that I trained from when I was 15 to 18, it was a two to three times a week, full body routine, compound movements, mostly five by five or five by eight type stuff. And it was perfect. But I think that, you know, you reach a point in your training where you can produce so much intensity that you weren't capable of producing earlier in your career, uh, that it just becomes a little bit mitigating. I would, I would push back just for, for yep. con an alternative perspective in the sense that your answer, same answer as the answer I would give where it's like, I couldn't, uh, I'm going to be sore the whole week. That was like an assumption. I'm going to be sore the whole week and an assumption that, um, you know, mentally I wouldn't be able to get into the zone training legs that often because of the high fatigue, most of the movements just require a bit more neurological, like kind of getting in the zone and, um, looking at the program was already daunting. So I got to do legs four days in a row and I just kind of wanted to get it over with and, Having moved to full body, like I just don't experience any of those things. It's not that I don't experience them at all. It's I don't experience them to a degree in which I'm like, oh, this is notably worse. Where, you know, if I do RDLs yesterday and I have to do ham curls in two days, you know, just doing my RDLs, my hams get, get you know, sore more than zero. But by the time I'm done warming up for my hamstring curls 72 hours later, like I'm good to go, like good enough to go and get a good stimulus. Um, and the neurological like getting myself emotionally up for it doesn't doesn't really happen if you you know if you just look at your overall leg training there's a titration a, a difference in the movements that are like really cognitively demanding and the ones that are like hey plug and play seated leg curl ham curl you know adductor work you know calf raises whatever um and i just haven't i haven't felt that i've actually felt like um i hate to give the like cliche like oh i'm giving my giving each of them better work because i'm not fucking slammed like my leg extension ham curls have never been of higher quality because normally they're shoved at a place in the workout where i'm like i'm checked out and not mm -hmm. just mentally checked out but those muscle groups are smoked um and i and i and i have felt like um i thought another thing i thought was like hey after rdls like nervous system wise i'm i'm, I'm not going to be able to either actually produce force or emotionally feel ready to work hard and yeah, man, what do I have after RDLs? I have a chest-supported row. I have a CD, uh, laying down cable press, uh, leg extension, and tricep extension. And I'm like, yeah, emotionally, I'm good after that. Like, I'm, no problem, you know? I, 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 All of the reasons that I've been coming, oh, it's gonna be more systemically fatiguing to have a leg exercise on each day. I'm like, okay, but what's the, that's a, that is a fact, maybe. But what's like the net impact on that? It's like, I'm, I'm actually gonna get worse gains because I'm I'm you know depends on where you're putting that exercise what exercise it is what are the other movements on that day and I feel like at this point like I talked to my group the other day and I'm like it's like I'm I'm, I'm thinking of of giving you guys four days a week full body even just to test my hypothesis on a large scale hundreds of people at once to see if people are like no I'm super four fatigued days. yeah four, four days a week um, and just take our exact program and test this real hypothesis of it doesn't matter how you split it up, that there's that likely the biggest difference will be people's general enjoyment of doing that. It won't hmm. be everyone's sore. It won't be people get worse gains. It'll be 
once I get into the zone to do legs, I want to keep doing legs. It won't be like mm. some actual net difference in gains. Um, yeah, four days a week, take the exact program and just say, hey, like you're going to do hack squat, ham curl, bicep, tricep, or whatever it is, and and um, do it in a couple. I have a couple different ideas, and I'm just trying to argue both sides of the equation. I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. think I have a real argument outside of some people might just not enjoy training like that. Yeah, I think another thing that I should have mentioned is that it really, to me, it felt like every day was leg day and you brought that up. And so that's really much like a very psychological, personal, individual thing to me. Um, Cause I've heard people say the other thing, which is now you never have a leg day, you know, no days are leg days. And I'm like, well, every fucking day, it feels like leg day. So, so that's a me thing for sure. Um, the other thing I push back on you a little bit in your program is that you're not um, doing the maximal intensity or volume given your cardiovascular work as well. And that's what I've experienced too. So in my current design of my full body program, I don't get sore. And that's why I love it so much. Cause I can do one top set of yes. these movements and sure. not get sore. Or like you said, you know, it's, it's more than zero, but it's not, it doesn't last more than a day or day and a half, whatever it is. And so that's been fine for me. As soon as I I go and I I now think, okay, maybe I'm going to double the volume of my full body program and I'm going to do two top sets for each exercise, which only leaves two quad sets and two hamstring sets on on a given day. So we're talking six quad sets and six hamstring sets over the course of a week. That's where I'm at right now at the moment. Yeah, I get I get sore from that. So so like yesterday, for example, I knew it's my taper week. I, I don't have a whole ton of cardio to do this week. Nothing intense, at least. So I went and I did two sets of hack squat and two sets of leg curls where I usually only do one and I am really sore today. So there, there's certainly an argument that repeated bout effect could take care of that over time. Um, are you but, so sore that it's that it, like you're sore today, but are you training today? So like, are you, is that soreness, you know, coming down by the time you would train again? To be determined. I mean, this is, it feels to me like it's that kind of deep leg soreness where like the day after is sore, but then it gets worse the day after that type thing. Uh, at least in my quads. So my hamstrings are a little sore. I think they'll be fine tomorrow. But uh, I did two sets to failure basically on the hack sled yesterday with the pause at the bottom. And my quads are like sensitive to the touch. I can't straighten my knee without some pain. So um, I think it could yeah, come down I, to a personal. It, it could come down. Yeah. 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 It, no, I, I, mean, I, I think it could come down to that. to how sore. Like you might be like, oh, I'm super fast twitch dominant. And, you know, just based on my anthropometry, I get such crazy. My setup and anthropometry, I get crazy lengthening in your in your hack squat. And like you might be the type of person who's like, wow, I fuck my shit up with two two sets of hack squats. And I don't want to go just down that that route of like everyone's special butterfly. But um, but yes, you're right. You might be like, hey, dude, I really just when I do hack squat, I wreck myself two sets. Yeah. I am sore for 72 hours and I, I kind of do need to train again. Um, I, I think that, I think for me I, that there's totally some room for, okay, inter-individuality and, and response to training for sure. I bet though that the, for me, the biggest, do I like this or not? Does one like this or not? Would come down to the fact that do you look at your leg day and would you produce better effort net across the whole week? If you had ham curl, uh, and leg press, and then some upper body work, or like which distribution is going to make you work harder on average, get better performance on average, enjoy it more on average. I think, yes, a, confa- a, a part of that is if I get wrecked from those two leg exercises and I have to do legs again in two days, that day suffers. Um, whether or not that is true is certainly a, v- a relevant factor here. I have found that my RDLs 
My leg extensions are better. My RDLs, I found that every leg exercise has improved. You're right that there's a confounder. I'm not doing a ton of volume. Um, that my effort on basically everything across the board has gone up. And I, the only way I can, the only reasoning is because I just like that split. I'm liking it more. Um, and that that is purely non-physiological. It's just psychological. I enjoy it more, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I never have uh, really loved the full body split like after my first three years every time i've gone back to it over the last 10 years where i, I get kind of this rom- romantic uh rose-colored glasses of my youth and i'm like oh i should totally go back and do full body again and every time i get five six weeks into it and i'm like what am i doing this is awful i hate this you're you know? also so, so strong um, you're, what? Super, you're super strong and that's a confounder too right just like yeah. my rdl at 270 is your like low day you know yeah, I mean, everyone's individual. We go to the same proximity to failure. You you don't you wouldn't say that there's an isolated independent va- variable just of load that you would say it's. Mostly- I mean, maybe, but I don't know if three thirty five or three fifty five to fair to two ninety five sure. is is enough to make the difference. The guy that's squatting six hundred for five or something Agreed. like that, I think, does make a significant difference. Yeah, well said, well said, true, 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 true. definitely, definitely. I th- I'd say though, you you versus like hundred. 20 pound female that might be where we start to see that for sure yeah yeah cool man cool overall uh we didn't leave a lot of time i would love to hear just fucking word vomit for the next like i got like eight minutes um about your taper week i'm i'm fascinated you said you're not doing any intensity work give me the give me the big big buckets big blocks of changes that you have this race saturday so what are you changing about your nutrition and training heading into saturday yeah nutrition not so much i'm really i mean I've been doing all of my rides, my training rides, the exact same way with the exact same nutrition, and I don't really want to change a whole ton. So I'm thinking my only big change will probably be my race is at 2.30, which I also am not a huge fan of. I wish it was at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. or something, but uh, it's at 2.30. So I'm probably going to do nothing different the night before and just kind of eat more carbs than usual in the hours leading up to the race. I'm going to fuel the race exactly as I always do, which is a a three-liter um, hydro pack. And I'm going to bring one water bottle with water. The hydro pack is going to have some, a little bit of protein and Gatorade powder and electrolytes and stuff like that in it. Um, I'm not going to go crazy on the carbs. Like a lot of endurance athletes do where they recommend 90 grams of carbs per hour of effort. Um, I will not be consuming that much. I do not intend to do that to my gut. Uh, I have found that 30 grams to 40 grams of carbs per hour seems to be more than plenty to keep me going, especially if I have some food prior, which I'm going to in this case. Uh, So for taper week, I lifted yesterday. I did full body, which was Sunday. And then the one on Wednesday should be much chiller, uh, a little bit further from failure, a little bit lower volume. And uh, then as far as the cardio stuff goes, my initial plan was not to do any intensity. And then I literally just watched a YouTube video this morning where they broke down a bunch of studies on taper week. And it was talking about how intensity is the thing that you want to keep up, but you want to reduce volume, which is very in line with the uh, research on, you know, powerlifting or, or strength sport. However, my race is not really an intense race that's benefited by high intense exercise. And so I'm going to have one I think it's going to be tomorrow where I'm going to push a little bit of intensity, but do a low volume of it. So maybe it's three intervals of four minutes each instead of six intervals of four minutes each or something along those lines. And then I am going to do zone two ride uh, today, right? When we get off this podcast, I'm going to do a a low zone two ride. And then I'll probably do another one 
on Thursday. So basically a uh, two lifts, two zone two sessions, and one short interval session. And then Friday, I'll probably do a 20-minute spin just to like clear the legs out after we drive five hours uh, before, you know, I go to bed that night. So really three, three cardio training sessions, two lifting sessions, and only one thing that really is actually like semi-intense, but the volume is pretty low. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, the difference between running and biking is that, is that, that running is, is more technical and has more of a technique component. And so I'm not, I don't know, I haven't explored cycling as much as you have, but I'm assuming the technical component is lower. And that's one of the benefits of, of doing mm-hmm. cycling. Um, but talking to, to Alex, my coach, Alex Viata, uh, we were talking about the importance of the importance, how important it is to keep that high intensity. And it's the, 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 the likeness to like the analogies that are available to like powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting or other performance sports is really is, is awesome because it, it, it makes a ton of sense. It's like, okay, when my race is coming up, I'm, I need to be practicing my, my race sport. I don't, this isn't an adaptation gaining week. We're not trying to gain adaptations. We're trying to d- reduce fatigue and keep technique really high. Um, and so like you said, it's like you keep just enough intensity in to keep your technique sharp, but not to get tired. And so we would take one of my my pace, you know, my tempo threshold, whatever you want to call it intervals. And it's like, all right, we're going to do that because you, you need to practice this. Like you would, you know, work up to, I don't know, I've never powerlifted before, but in that taper week, like you are still exposed to heavyweights. We're just not getting tired because I need you feeling what that technique is going to be like. Neurologically, I need you sharp. Uh, but but fatigue wise, I need to drop it. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Where we're like, hey, you know, whatever technical component there is, you still need to have an exposure yeah. to that this week. Um, you can't show up having not done the thing you need to do in weeks. You know what I mean? That just like makes yeah. kind of sense. Um, yeah, super interesting. You had said up to ninety grams of carbs per hour. I'm, I'm looking at my notes from Alex. We were talking the other day about. Um, so Alex and I were talking about, and he'll be okay with me sharing this, but we were looking at this like one gram per kilogram per hour in terms of carbohydrate intake as like, a, just like a super rough, easy to estimate. Yep. And for you, 90, yeah. yeah, for you, that's like in that like yeah. 70 to hundred range. Um, yeah. But he was, he was saying that for new people who aren't necessarily like, if it's your first race or your first couple of races that he actually recommends doing it on a 30 minute basis. Now that's not, He's, he's, he's saying, okay, I know that for a new racer, that seems like a daunting change. Oh, I'm eating more frequently. But the point is to have smaller meals that are easier mm-hmm. on the gut. And so that was something that was I found not, not necessarily counterintuitive, but counterintuitive at first. Um, have you been like, hey, when I, I have not yet begun fueling while I run because I have not yet had to run as long as would benefit from that. Um, but are you doing this every hour? Are you saying, okay, I'm going to, are you eating anything? Are you trying to get all your nutrition through your pack? through your liquids. Yeah, no, all of the nutrition is through the pack. So I'm literally just sipping on that hose every 20 minutes or so. I'll take a few big gulps of it. And I I mostly think about it like when I climb a hill and I'm panting and I'm out of breath and I finally get that descent to chill out, I'm like, oh, cool. Let's drink something so I can prepare for the next hill. So I'm like constantly infusing my body with with nutrition here. And uh, the other thing I was going to say is that my race is going to be three and a half, four hours. So it it, it depends, man. If I'm able to race it at that race pace test workout that I did, I think I can do it in like three hours or three, three, three Oh five, three ten, something like that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. Um, there's just extenuating circumstances involved. So, you know, you don't know how race day is going to go. It's all on gravel. Whereas the one I did that day was not gravel. Um, 
I'm guessing it's going to be three and a half to four hours. So I think that diminishes the importance of the intensity in taper week. I think that it becomes less important for me to keep the technical skill of going hard and going fast, uh, which is why I just think that one short day of intervals on Tuesday should be plenty. And it's more important for me to keep the aerobic base and to make sure that my legs are fresh so that I don't go for 20 minutes and feel like I've led in my legs. And to me, that's maintained by doing more of these kind of hour long zone two ish style workouts where you're pedaling the entire time. Yeah. 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 We were talking about like, it's again, the analogies are, are, are palpable. We were just talking about deload a week cessation of training from, from a lifting perspective. And it's the same way. It's like, Hey, what have I been trying to do this whole time? I've been trying to improve my eccentric hypertrophy. I've been trying to, to work on capillary density and some of these metabolic processes, those physical adaptations don't go anywhere. It's not like you're, you're going to lose some of those eccentric hypertrophy adaptations. You're not like, you're looking to just very gently maintain them. Like you're not going to lose them doing some zone two stuff, but just enough high high intensity to expose yourself to that. Yeah. Very interesting. So yeah, your race is three to four hours, let's say. And if we're looking at like an average of like a a liter per hour that you can, your body can actually absorb, you're kind of like right on the money there. Um, Some interesting stuff we were talking about is, is the, is the potential for, uh, the benefit of diversity, not just because like oh, eating something and drinking something are different, but I've, you know, Alex is like, Hey, for much longer races, potentially that there's like, um, a taste aversion that can kick in mm-hmm. where it's like people stop drinking because they drink the, it's the same thing or they, they only brought one kind of bar and they're like, I don't want to eat this anymore. And so like recommending, like just having something on hand that isn't the same flavor as the thing you've been eating or drinking, um, also this idea of the opposite where people get like really dry mouth depending on what they're doing especially you're gonna have a lot of wind in your face and so mistaking that for thirst and over drinking mm-hmm. early can also be something that's a risk um so yeah. that, that those were just interesting sidebars of like i've never gone through a rate i don't know about you i've never gone through this mental exercise of like what are the practical things that that's one who has not raced would not think of you know yeah, I tried to handle all of that as best I could through excessive watching of YouTube videos and reading some research briefs and stuff. But uh, like I've been practicing with the hydration pack. And so I'm I'm pretty comfortable with how big of sips to take, yeah. how often, yep, what that's thirst smart. feels like. And I, I can relate 100% to what you said about the taste aversion. And so that's why I usually on my training rides, I don't have water with me. I just have the hydro pack with the like pink gooey Gatorade liquid in it. Um, so this time I'm going to bring water because I know that there's points where I want water. And then I'm also going to bring a bar and probably a bag full of almonds or something like that, just so that I have some other options in case I want them. And, um, I have a tube bag on my, on my bike. So everything can just kind of fit in there pretty seamlessly. Nice. Interesting. All right, cool. Anything else that you've been, I don't know, whatever, just, you know, you know, both of us are on this, like on this journey of, of learning more about cardio and, and integrating it all is anything else that you've been exposed to or in preparation for this race that you've been like, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that. No, not so much. I mean, something specific to the bike, but not necessarily specific to cardiovascular endurance in general. Um, I'll let you know if anything comes up though. I'm sure we can do this again afterwards, recap it and talk about what's next in, in training and things like that. Yep. I'd love to do the what's next. I, my last question is, uh, and then I'll let you go. We both got to run, but, um, is, are there like other people in the race? Like what I mean by that is like, are you, is that, is that like, I all of a sudden like thought like, all right, well, I, I didn't even consider like other people racing near me or is there some, some, I don't really, yeah. care. I'm not, I don't fucking care what I, what place I come in or whatever, but like, are you, are you like, oh, there's other people and it's like, I'm going to, yeah. I don't want to crash or like any of this stuff. 
Yeah, dude, a hundred percent. I mean, that's why I think that me maintaining the rate of speed that I did on that practice ride a couple of weeks ago is probably unrealistic because it is going to be a bit of pack riding and you are going to be limited in some of the turns and stuff on how fast you can go. Um, you're going to have to be considerate of other riders. And so I think that can be an advantage if you know how to draft, which I, I'm utterly terrified of drafting because I haven't practiced it, but I, well, from what I've heard, you know, you can make up a lot of ground and a lot of speed and save a lot of energy from drafting. I probably won't be doing that because I don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm still gonna have to deal with the pack dynamic at times. Um, and then I also took a fall yesterday or two days ago on gravel, trying to round a corner too fast. And I, my back tires slid out. So I got this sweet, uh, marks on my hand, a big bandaid on my hand. And so trying to push the limit of how fast I can corner was great for practice, but probably not something I should do on game day. So, you know, taking corners a little bit more prudently as well. It's, uh, I don't know how it's going to go. Um, I'm just going to go as fast as I can in a sustainable manner. And hopefully I don't red line too early. Cool, man. Cool, man. All right, I'll let you get out of here. I'd love to. Let's circle back in a couple of weeks. I want to hear how it went. Uh, we'll download, you know, just some of the learnings and, and talk about what's next. Yeah, buddy. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.